Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, Esther, the Introduction. Now today we're going to begin our study of the book of Esther in earnest. And as is our custom, we're going to begin with an introductory overview. Now last week we viewed an instructional film about Esther that gave us a good mental picture of the context and the general happenings in this biblical book. For those who missed it and you'd like to obtain it, it's the Bible, the book of Esther, by Trimark Videos. You can find it easily enough online. Now the reason that we're moving from Daniel directly into Esther is that it, is chronolo- it chronologically fits the sequence. The story of Esther is quite unique in the Bible and as such it creates all sorts of interesting difficulties as you're soon going to see. It occurs in Persia, and the Persian Empire period we're dealing with in Esther is often called the New Persian Empire, which began with King Cyrus around 550 BC, and then it extended to about 330 BC. The end of Daniel takes place at the beginning of this New Persian Empire that's also called the Media Persian Empire. So biblically and prophetically speaking, the second of this succession of four Gentile world empires as prophesied by Daniel in Media Persia has now come into being. The first, that of Nebuchadnezzar's, was the Babylonian Empire. Symbolically speaking, that was the head of gold. of of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue so it was now replaced by the silver arms and chest or in Daniel's parallel vision that used those strange beasts for its symbolism the lion beast has now been replaced by the bear beast so the silver arms and chest the bear beast the ram with the two horns all symbolize the same thing the media Persian empire now we're going to get a bit bit technical we're going to cover a lot of ground rapidly this is after all an overview we're not going to get too deep and I'm not going to give you a reader's digest version of Esther as that was the purpose of showing you the film last week so here we go We know that the setting for the book of Esther is sometime between about 485 B.C. and 460 B.C. It can't be later than about 460 B.C. because Ezra, that Levite priest who would lead a delegation of Jews back to Judah at that time in order to complete rebuilding the temple and restoring Jerusalem's walls, He's involved in the story of Esther and so had not left yet to return to Judah. And Esther occurs after the time of the Persian king Cyrus who was, who was the king that ended 
the book of Daniel. So we get about a 25-year window where the Esther incident seems to have occurred. Now, Esther, it's as controversial as the book of Daniel. It seems that even some early rabbis weren't entirely convinced that Esther was much more than a Jewish legendary tale. Other rabbis believed that the Esther incident happened, but they weren't so sure that the Esther scroll belonged as part of the Hebrew Bible. Many early Christian scholars felt the same way, and there were a number of reasons for their skepticism. Chief among those reasons is that God is not mentioned once in the Hebrew version of Esther. This brings us to another area of controversy with this book. There are a number of versions of it. And it depends on your particular Christian denomination or your Jewish sect as to which one of them, if any, that you accept as authoritative or even as belonging in the Bible at all. We're going to delve into this shortly. So the controversies surrounding Esther are many. Is this merely Jewish folklore? Is it possibly based on some obscure historical act, but it's been so embellished over the centuries that at best we could call it a historical novel or novella? Is it an actual, reliable, historical event? But perhaps not of the level of divine inspiration as, say, Genesis or the Psalms or the New Testament. Might it have been written merely as an encouragement to give the Jews of the diaspora a sense that no matter where they were, the Lord would deliver them from their oppressors? Or was it written only as a means to explain why the Feast of Purim exists? What is agreed upon is that Esther is told as a story. Everyone in every age loves a good story. Now I've spoken to you before that the Bible is made up of many different kinds of literature. Poetry, narrative, parable, songs, more. Here we encounter a kind of literature that is intentionally constructed as a memorable story. And it's told by a gifted storyteller. In fact, there are a few scholars that would tell you that this story is really a Greek comedy. Maybe even burlesque. Now while I think that's taking things a little bit too far, there's no doubt that there are all sorts of unexpected twists and turns of the plot in this story of Esther that can cause one to chuckle and there are some pretty sultry parts of it that can bring, to some of us at least, a flush to our cheeks. And because it's a story and it doesn't consist of dire prophetic warnings from God or the presentation of a divine system of uh, uh, laws to be obeyed or a treatise on how to properly worship the Elohim of Israel, Christians and Jews hardly know what to make of it. There's no directives from the Lord in it. 
There's no examination of biblical principles or unveiling of new ones. No vision of the future. Rather, we have a story. We have a story that captivates us. It holds our attention. Now, I've often said that the Bible was made for ordinary people to read and to understand it. You don't have to be a priest or a pastor or a professor or a theologian to understand what God has given to us in our Bibles. In times long past, when literacy was the province only of royalty and aristocrats and priests, the common folk only received whatever biblical knowledge that the government and the priesthood allowed them to know. In the Middle Ages, when there was such a growing hunger by the masses to know God personally, there was a thirst to to, to read and to hear His Word. Thousands upon thousands of Christians and Jews were murdered by their religious authorities for possessing even a scrap of Holy Scripture because those religious authorities insisted on having total control over scriptural knowledge. In our era, when almost everyone is literate, and when Bibles are plentiful and cheap and there are no barriers to access, when Bibles are available in almost every known language in existence and offered at almost every reading level, now it is often considered as too boring, too hard to understand, too hard for us to relate to, or just too much information. Yet here in Esther is a book that is fast-moving, it's dramatic, it's funny, it's ironic, it's suspenseful, and it's just plain enjoyable to read for people of all ages. It has good guys, bad guys, pretty girls. It's got an arrogant Gentile king and a beautiful, courageous Jewish girl who is thrust into a perilous situation not of her own making. What's it a story of? Now that's not so easy to say. It depends on one's point of view. To many Jews, it's the story of their collective life as a peculiar people scattered among the many Gentile cultures where they now lived. It speaks of the perils that for some inexplicable reason they inevitably face wherever they might live. It's representative of Jewish life in all eras since the time before they arrived in the Promised Land and since after their first exile into a predominantly Gentile world. A life that has them wandering into a region, settling, trying to get along with their Gentile neighbors while also obeying the Torah, hanging on to their ancient traditions and to their God. But they always seem to do it fine for a while. Things go well. But then, because of the differences between them and the natural citizens of the land where they they now live are just too great, Assimilation becomes impossible. Distrust, envy, finally hate, 
erupts into violence against the Jews. And just when it seems like their extinction is at hand, God shows up to deliver them in a nick of time. For many Christians, Esther is a tender love story of a female hero who uses her womanly wiles, her gentle wisdom, her extraordinary beauty to win the affections of, and even change the attitude of, her rather buffoonish husband, the king of Persia, and then she uses it to rescue her own people. It's a kind of ancient Beauty and the Beast tale with some Jews thrown in to add a little biblical flavor. Then it's all blended together with some danger and a healthy helping of intrigue to provide suspense. It's a romance. Not entirely distinct from the Song of Solomon. However, the rabbis tend towards saying that Esther is simply the story of Purim. And the story of Esther is needed because Purim was not ordained in the law of Moses. Nor is it mentioned anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. Thus there needed to be a reason. There had to be a defining historical event and an authorizing document about why all Jews were obligated to celebrate Purim. And even the anonymous writer of the story of Esther is quite careful not to imply that God has commanded the observance of Purim. So Purim is but a joyous man-made commemoration of a momentous or even symbolic event, a commemoration that it almost seems wrong not to have it. This is a celebration of Jewishness and all that comes with it, the good and the bad. Therefore, Christians have never found a reason to pay too much attention to this book, especially not to join in common celebration with the Jewish people. Most Christians have never even heard of Purim. Maybe by the time we've concluded our story of Esther, we'll have found some reasons why Christians need to reconsider our stance on this holiday. No other book of the Bible has come down to us in so many various forms. There is no scholarly consensus on the original version or even the one best version. There are many copies of Esther written in Hebrew, but none of them that we have goes back any further than about the 11th century AD, probably around the time of the First Crusade. The good news is that because there has always been such painstaking attention paid to copying the Bible by the Hebrew scribes, there are almost no differences at all between the various Hebrew manuscripts of Esther or any of the Old Testament books for that matter. The bad news is is that because the oldest manuscript of Esther that we have is only a thousand years old, there is a huge 1500 year void between the estimated time of its writing, perhaps around 450 BC, 
and the 11th century AD copy of it that we have. And that leaves a lot of questions open about which of the several surviving versions of Esther might be the truest to the original, if that even matters. Now, of course, we have heard similar arguments for centuries concerning the entire Hebrew Bible, especially among the Enlightenment scholars, until they were at least partially silenced by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because the Old Testament copies in Hebrew that we had up to that point, they were like Esther, not much more than a thousand years old. But suddenly, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we had large portions of the Hebrew Bible, in some places complete scrolls of the Old Testament books that were at least a thousand years older than anything we'd ever had. It took us back in time to around a hundred years before Christ, save for one, Esther. Esther was not found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a lot of speculations about that. There's not even a mention of the book in the vast trove of community documents found along with the Holy Scriptures as copied and maintained by the essence at Qumran. As a matter of fact, for those of you that will be going with us to, to, to Israel, we'll be going to Qumran. So there's a lot of speculations as to why all this is. But almost certainly it's because the Essens didn't see it as belonging among all the other books of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. However, because Aramaic had become perhaps the most important language of the region of the Holy Lands, and because Aramaic and Hebrew are so closely related, there were a number of translations of Esther made in Aramaic as early as the 300s BC. So even the most ardent of scriptural doubters admit that at the least Esther's a very old book. And it was written no later than about the time the Greeks were conquering the Media Persian Empire. Now, when the Media Persian Empire was eventually conquered by Alexander the Great around 330 BC, Greek cultural influence, and therefore the Greek language, spread like wildfire. And of course, this affected the Jewish communities of the, of the few million diaspora Jews. Only a handful of the diaspora Jews then spoke Hebrew anymore. Therefore, within a generation or two after Alexander's conquest, the need for a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible became apparent. The result of that was that Ptolemy, king of Egypt, commissioned a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek about 250 B.C. And a formidable group of scholars was assembled in Alexandria, Egypt, to accomplish that task. The result of it is what is today called the Septuagint, or the LXX. And in many, modern, many of our modern Christian Bibles are based off of this Greek translation. Interestingly, the book of Esther was included in the original Septuagint, proving beyond doubt 
that it must have existed in Hebrew before 250 BC so that it was available for translation into Greek. But other independent Greek versions also arose. And with that came several additions to the book of Esther. Upon those additions, and later still with the already biased viewpoint among Christians about the book of Esther, it was removed from the Christian Bible and was placed with the apocryphal literature, books like Maccabees, Tobit. And not long later, some of the church fathers disagreed with this drastic action and they put the early Septuagint version of Esther back into their Bibles, but they removed the many additions from the text and they placed them together at the end of the book. Now, of course, taken from their context, this kind of pile of Greek additions now made little sense we get a better grasp of the problem when we understand that the Greek version of Esther with all of its dubious additions is 274 verses long. But the Hebrew version is only 167 verses long. So the Greek version adds 107 verses that weren't there at one time. Got to be careful what you read. That's not all. Even Josephus got into the act in the first century AD and he wrote his own version of Esther. Then there is the rabbinical version of Esther that's in the Talmud called Megalot Esther. And it has its variations as well. So when talking about the book of Esther, we need to realize there are numerous versions of it even if the kernel of the story and the outcome remains identical. Now the Jerusalem Bible probably took the best approach to this problem. They left the Greek editions in the Bible more or less where they were first placed, but they italicized them so that you, it was understood what they, what they are. There are essentially six major additions to what is believed to be the closest thing we have to the original Esther. And I'm going to point these additions out as we proceed with our study. So, what was the purpose of making these many additions to the book of Esther? More than likely, it had to do with making the book work better with Jewish sensibilities. After all, since there is no mention of God, and since the story takes place in an alien cultural setting, Persia, then where's the religious significance to it? And as I've already mentioned, there was a running debate as to whether Esther belonged in the Hebrew Bible at all. Yet it had already been there a long time as demonstrated by the fact that in 250 BC it was part of what was translated from Hebrew to Greek to form the Septuagint. So it seems that some Jewish editors added religious elements to the story to try to quell some of the demands to remove it from the Bible. Thus, Indeed, within the several additions to Esther, the word God is added. We find prayers 
offered up to God. And also a sort of divine dream vision is given to Mordecai, warning him of impending disaster. So now we get the element of prophecy infused into the story. So we can see why there's been serious challenges to the credibility of this book. In the end, however, perhaps the only intellectually honest debate about Esther ought to revolve around which of the several versions we have today is the most authentic and the least modified from the original. Because even the additions don't really change the story of Esther in any significant way, except to make it more religious and a little less secular in its tone. All other challenges seek to simply overturn the truth of the book of Esther and make it into a Jewish fairy tale. And as we look closely at the facts, that's just an unwarranted conclusion. Now when we look at the objections that many scholars, Jewish and Christian, have offered against the historic authenticity of Esther, in the end, they amount to mostly their personal views of subjective probability. That is, what they give is their opinions without evidence based on what they think could or could not have happened at that time. For instance, they say that some number that is used is too large to be realistic or some circumstance is too, is too absurd in their view to be real or most often that no archaeological evidence has ever been found to substantiate the biblical claim. It's not that there is some hard physical evidence that has been discovered that makes anything in Esther false. Rather, it is that there's not been sufficient hard evidence in their minds to prove that what happens in Esther is true. And this is because, for many of these scholars, the Bible is a suspect book from beginning to end. They're much happier more enthused, quicker to believe some record or declaration or oblique narrative in an ancient Assyrian or Babylonian document than they are with the Hebrew documents that form the Bible. And usually their bottom line stated reason for this is that there's too much religion mixed with Hebrew history to count the Bible as reliable. The addition of spirituality, they say, makes the Bible useless because they don't believe in spirit in the first place. But even if that was a rational, reasonable position to take, it overlooks that these ancient Assyrian and Babylonian records that they assume to be true and accurate also invariably call upon their gods. They blame the gods for military defeats or droughts. They give them credit for battle victories or good crops. Even the kings were named after their gods. So as it turns out, what these scholars have trouble with is anything with a Judeo-Christian historical background. Not a religious historical background provided, is it provided that it's a pagan religious historical background. That's okay. Further, the academic notion that 
all reliable history has to be backed up with archaeological finds or it's invalid, it's ridiculous on its face. If that was the standard, we have practically no reliable history of any culture at any time in the history of the world to look back upon with any real assurance. Our history books would look more like thin pamphlets. And as Dr. Walter Kaiser Jr. points out in his Archaeology Bible as concerns the book of Esther, we know practically nothing of the early Persians except that they, along with the Medes, were Indo-Europeans. And as Dr. C.F. Keel points out in his commentary on Esther, we have only sparse knowledge of what life was like in the Persian Empire at the time of Esther. Even less about what palace life was like among the royalty. So for a Bible scholar to declare that such and such couldn't possibly have happened in the Persian culture or inside the Persian monarchy is not done so in light of facts. It's just their personal opinion. Well, Dr. Kaiser made a list of the nine most common reasons that so many scholars, the majority of modern scholars, according to him, say that the book of Esther is not historical. And yet, there's nothing within the story itself that implies it's anything but real. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no manna from heaven type of miracles in it for, there to be, for them to be skeptical of. And nothing claimed that is supernatural or that is inherently, naturally impossible. In chapter 1, as the first of the nine, in chapter 1, a feast of 180 days was given for all the bigwigs of the Persian Empire. Scholars say that to them, this amount of time is excessive and therefore it just can't be true. But we know that Xerxes, that's the king in the story of Esther, was constantly trying to conquer Greece. And so it is probable that this feast was mostly about a long time of diplomatic lobbying and a strategic military planning session. This wasn't about having a continuous 180-day banquet. Nor should we take it that all the leaders of the empire were there at the same time nor were, when they arrived there, that they were there for the, the whole 180 day period. Nothing suggests that. Second, in chapter 2, we're told that the virgin girls gathered up for the king of Persia to choose from for a new wife were anointed with perfumes and oils for six months and then their bodies were treated with spices and ointments for an additional six months before they're brought before the king. Once again, this combined one year preparation is dismissed as excessive, thus not believable. Yet, to take common girls from non-aristocratic families and train them in royal court decorum and protocols to heal up their calluses and their blisters and their blemishes and to make them as beautiful and flawless as possible for this hedonistic king to take 12 months to do is probably about the least amount of time imaginable to accomplish that kind of thing. 
Third of all, chapter 1 states that the media Persian Empire consisted of 127 provinces. However, the historian Herodotus wrote there was only 20. But this supposed conflict is only founded on the notion that because Herodotus said there were 20 satrapies, that somehow carries the same meaning as the Hebrew word that's used in Esther, Medina, that just means districts. In other words, the Persian Empire probably was divided into 20 satrapies, each of it with its own governor, but at the same time, those 20 satrapies entailed some 127 districts consisting of many smaller kingdoms and independent city-states that the Persians had conquered. Sort of like the state and county system like we use in the USA. The number of counties does not equal the number of states. So there's no discrepancy that needs to be seen here. Fourth, chapter 1 states that a decree given by a Persian king is irrevocable. And this is seen by some academics as just not believable. Yet, we hear the exact same thing in Daniel chapter 6. In verse 9 it says, Now your majesty issue this decree over your signature so that it cannot be revoked because it's required by the law of the Medes and the Persians which itself is irrevocable. There's no question, by the way, that two different authors from two different eras who had no knowledge of one another wrote these two books of Daniel and Esther. Well, in chapter 3 we read of the Persians planning a year in advance to massacre the Jews and then even letting them know about it. This, says the scholars, is too unlikely to accept. Yet the book explains that the date for this massacre wasn't set by the king or by a military general or even by Haman. But it was by divination through the casting of lots by Persian priests. And if the lots gave the propitious month and day something was to happen, this of course had to be followed, lest the gods be upset and everything go bad. And since the king wasn't even really much involved in this process, it was Haman that insisted upon an attack and organized this attack, no doubt Haman was not about to buck what the king's priests said, was the, was the date that the gods wanted this heinous thing to occur. Now chapter 3 says that Haman was an Agagite. And scholars say that this seems much too coincidental that Haman would be a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite, a dreaded enemy of Israel who cost King Saul his crown. However, there's nothing in this verse that claims that this reverence to an Agagite has any relation whatsoever to the Amalekites. No one quite knows what is meant by Agagite in this context, especially since it had been five centuries since the time of King Saul. Now, seventh, assuming, as most do, that King Ahasuerus was but the Greek name for King Xerxes, then there is no 
Persian or Greek record of a wife of this king named Vashti, which is what the Esther story claims. Rather, the queen was named Amestris. However, there is a good probability that Amestris is Esther because linguistically, Esther and Amestris are nearly identical words. Eighth, scholars claim that although Xerxes is certainly a historically identifiable name for a king in that period in Persia, that the name Mordecai is nowhere else known in Persian records. Uh, Therefore, it's just a made-up name. However, that's a disingenuous claim. Because in Persian and Babylonian, his name is not Mordecai, it's Marduka. And indeed, in Persian and in Babylonian records, the name Marduka, a Babylonian name, is found. In fact, there's one Persian tablet that's been found that speaks about Xerxes' ascension to the throne and in it there's record of a royal accountant residing at Susa, the city where the story of Esther takes place, whose name was Mordecai. Mordecai in Hebrew. And finally, ninth, the claim is that archaeological data has not confirmed the Esther story. And as Dr. Kaiser says, well, it's rare that physical archaeological data ever confirms a historical event. The most usual way for reconstructing historical events is not from archaeology, but rather from piecing together data from various documents or even from oral traditions. For instance, we don't demand that the Mayflower be found in order to believe that the pilgrims landed on that ship at Plymouth Rock. But that's the sort of standard that modern Bible scholars insist must be imposed on the Holy Scriptures. Otherwise, they're to be seen only as Jewish legend and myth. So, how ought we to look at and think about what we'll study in Esther. First, we can know that it was real. The characters were real. The event happened. Was every last detail that we have now accurate? Likely not. For one thing, whoever wrote it could not have been inside the palace inside the king's chambers, inside of Esther's chambers, inside of Haman's house, and privy to all of those conversations and plots. This would have been information gathered from a number of sources, some by eyewitnesses, some by hearsay. Besides, all historical happenings that are recorded are reported through the lens, the culture, and the agenda of the person who's writing it. And if you don't believe that, just compare the various news stories of current events today on almost anything that's happening. And at times you wonder if they're even speaking about the same event. Whether it's the progress of the war in Afghanistan, the peace talks, 
that word has a hard time even coming out of my mouth, between the Palestinians and the Israelis, the theft of national intelligence documents by Edward Snowden, or even what the new Obamacare medical system accomplishes or is meant to accomplish, we'll read a number of different viewpoints that often conflict with one another. The Bible operates in a similar fashion. And books like Esther, and by the way, especially the New Testament synoptic Gospels, are especially vulnerable to the author's personal viewpoint and vantage point. But at the least, we see a number of important theological issues and themes raised within Esther. For instance... God's invisible providence is on full display, even though it's not specifically brought to our attention by name. The story of Esther is told as a series of improbable, if not impossible, coincidences that foiled the effort of the evil Haman to gain great power and status for, for himself at the same time ridding the Persian Empire of an entire people, the Jews, because only one among them, Mordecai, pricked his pride. Yet, for the spiritually oriented person, it's obvious that these supposed coincidences were but God guiding history behind the scenes with almost no one, Jew or Persian, aware of it. We also see that God raised up an ordinary people who were living in less than ideal circumstances in a foreign land to do service for him. Esther and Mordecai were not aristocrats, although Mordecai seemed to have been considered a wise man and probably some type of informal leader of the Jewish people, in Susa anyway. Thus, God can use anyone, even the most unlikely, to do the most amazing things if we'll just learn to say yes to Him. When every bone in our body wants to yell, No way! Usually, by the way, because it's something uncomfortable, unfamiliar, inconvenient, or well out of our pay grade that he seems to be asking of us. I see in Esther the story of a repeating pattern of irrational hatred for the Jewish people that seems to suddenly come out of nowhere like a microburst from the sky that can fell trees and rip the roofs off of homes. All throughout history, it seems that one tyrant or another takes some kind of homicidal bent towards the Jews that makes no sense. Often the Jews are an important cog of the societal machine of whatever nation they might be in. And to evict them or to oppress them or to murder them only harms the nation. But no matter, it's done anyway. Usually to the detriment of the national leader who led the oppression or the expulsion. 
we see that same thing happening today. Why does anti-Semitism seem to be on the rise in Europe? When the Jews are such a small part of European society are in most cases nearly invisible. Why does Europe and the USA believe that the Jews of Israel just have too much land for their own nation when they already have one of the tiniest countries on the planet of which nearly half of it is a barren desert? Thus the consensus is they need to give some more of it away to an invented people called the Palestinians who have made it their stated goal to eradicate the state of Israel from the face of the earth and to kill all Jews anywhere they might be found on this globe. The word most often used today to describe this inability to reach peace in the Middle East is intractable. That word means something that is uncontrollable, impossibly difficult, a problem that seems to have no solution. But why is this problem intractable? Because of an irrational hatred by most of the world's Gentiles for the Jewish people. What a secular world can't understand, however, is that this is really a spiritual battle just as it was for Esther, Mordecai, King Xerxes, and Haman. As we're soon going to read in Esther, it was only because Haman hated but one Jew, Mordecai, that he decided he was going to hate them all. Not just personally, personally, maniacally, to the point he felt the Jews shouldn't exist any longer. So then he went to the Persian king as a trusted advisor. He counseled him that these people were rebellious, they were an extreme danger to the king's empire, and told the king, or rather the king told him, well, do whatever you think's best. Again, irrational eradicating the Jews was harmful to his empire simply because they were so numerous. They were industrious. They greatly contributed to the empire's economy. But he agreed to it anyway because it just seemed unimportant to him. We also see a theme of civil disobedience being acceptable to the Lord when it comes to saving God's people from destruction. Mordecai defied Haman. Queen Esther defied her husband the king, as well as disobeying some of the immutable laws of the Persian government. And we see that God didn't just miraculously sweep away their danger. Rather, the plan was for the Jews to defend themselves with the sword. They would have to fight for their own lives. God was on their side, of course. So while Esther and all the Jews of Susa fasted and prayed to God for three days to find an answer to their dilemma, the answer came in the form of battle 
Let that sink in. Some Jews would lose their lives in order for their people to survive. Prayer first as a preparation and then springing into action. No passivity, no standing on the sidelines letting somebody else deal with it. No praying and sitting on our hands waiting for God to supernaturally handle things. And then finally we read about pride. How it can destroy. And in this case, it is the pride of Haman who fancies himself as being fabulously wealthy, possessing a cunning beyond the reach of others, and being second in power to the king of Persia. He obtained his status through lying and treachery, and he was willing to destroy an entire people, the Jews, to accelerate and cement his position in the royal court. He hated Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. And his pride just couldn't stand it. But because of the arrogance that goes hand in hand with pride, Haman thought his cleverness would be undetectable, his strategies impossible to stop. And just as he thought, all was in his hands, the floor gave way. And not just he, but his entire family was destroyed because of it. The old biblical proverb of pride going before the fall was on full display. Next week, we'll begin Esther chapter 1.